0: Hi, everybody. Jamie here with a timely plug for listeners in the New York City area. I am doing a brand new live show with my buddy Jake Flores at TVI in New York City, September 2nd. This show is called The Woke Mob because everyone knows that that's who we are. We love to cancel. We're The Woke Mob. Uh, It's going to have comedy, music, late night vibes, games, surprises, And we're also going to have some guests. That's right. Um, We've got some familiar faces. We will have Andy from the Antifada. He's going to do a special performance for us. We are going to have Katie Halper, who you may know from the Katie Halper Show. Um, And we're also going to have a very cool musical guest, a band called Bimbos, that I met when I was down in Atlanta. So uh, yeah, everybody come. It's going to be at 7.30 p.m. sharp at tvi in ridgewood uh tickets are very cheap i'll put a link to them in the show description and if you can't make it down there don't worry because uh we're going to be recording it as well and it will be online on you know various platforms so i think that's it everybody come i'm very excited about this thing and um yeah now back to your regularly scheduled programming Good lead into the next question I was going to ask you guys, and I think it's a good one to ask, sort of in conversation with both of you, because there's a lot on the podcast about what it was like to have to live underground, what it was like to grow up underground, and you know the way it impacted various people and families. So, you know, what was it like for you guys um, to live underground? What was it like for you, said to grow up that way? And do you think it's ultimately, I mean, I guess this is different for everyone probably, but do you think it's ultimately a good idea for pro revolutionary partisans like myself and Jorge and, you know, a lot of the people in the podcast to have children when they have actively <laughs> devoted their lives to the struggle for social revolution? Like, this is something I think about a lot as, you know, a 38-year-old woman trying to arrange my life in such a way that it would make it possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm I'm a different person and we're living in different times. But, you know, I am involved with a movement uh, like the one in Atlanta to stop Cop City. And a lot of people are facing domestic terrorism charges right now. So, but I'm not going to stop. So it's something that's really on my mind. And I would like to get uh, both of your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I'm very interested to hear Jamal's perspective in terms of making that decision. Obviously, for me, the decision was made for me. You know, and I I grew up underground and in the movement. I would certainly never obviously I would never say, no, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have had me like I'm glad that that I that I got the chance I got. I'm glad I had the life I had. It was complicated, you know. No question. Growing up as a kid in in a, a, a revolutionary group, in a revolutionary moment, in a revolutionary organization, is complicated. And it meant, you know, for me, certain sacrifices. You know, not only the the kind of strangeness of growing up underground as as a young kid, but then my mom going to jail when I was a kid, and then and, you know uh, many other. I mean, I, uh, it's a it's a long and complicated family history of the sort of consequences for my family of my parents' and my adopted brother's parents' sort of revolutionary choices. But that being said, I think, I guess I've come to see it as, um, you know, revolutionary struggle and parenting are two halves of the same coin of sort of revolutionary optimism about the future, you know, like the way I can best understand it is that people who want to make a better world they want to make a better world, not just for themselves, but for future generations, right? And so sometimes that can get complicated when, um, when you know, the kids have to suffer some for their parents' decisions. But, you know, I, I come back a lot. I, I spoke to Kakuya Shakur for the podcast, who's Asada Shakur's daughter, and she said a very profound thing about, you know, I asked her a similar question to what you just asked us, and and she said something to the effect of, you know, my mom was always somebody who, she she marched to a different drummer. She wanted to make a better world. She had no choice but to fight. She wasn't the kind of person who could who could accept a world of un, of injustice. Um, but our ancestors have been fighting that fight for many 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 generations, and always there are people who will rise up and demand a better world. And those people are inevitably going to have children, and those children have to figure out how to fight for a better world themselves. So. I see it as a, a, a complicated decision. Certainly you shouldn't make the decision to have kids lightly. You have to think about the world you're bringing them into. But I think you shouldn't know. I, I also think it's a it's I can't I can't condone people who have kids and then say, OK, I've had my kids and, and I don't care what happens to the rest of the world. I'm just going to focus on 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 my own little nuclear family, right? It's you have to if you're going to have kids, you also have to be committed to to changing the world they're coming into. You can't. Have kids that say this is the world that I'm going to leave. Then this world is is not finished, and we have to struggle to make it better.
2: Uh, you know, for me, I, being so in the in the thick of it, as you know, having joined the Panther so young at 15, and then by 16 in prison, and then coming out, and and by virtue of the fact that that I was one of the Panther 21, uh, uh, expected to serve not just as for a few months, it was just to Fannie Shakur and I speaking on behalf of the Panther 21, but also in leadership positions, we were officers. Right. And so, uh, you you know, we, uh, you know, you, you could be speaking at, you know, at Leonard Bernstein's uh, home at a fundraiser or or Jane Fonda's penthouse, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that evening. Uh, And then that night we'd be back in, Uh, You know, one of the Panther pads in Harlem or the Bronx doing our turn, uh, sitting by a window with a shotgun, doing police raids and being at the breakfast program. So it was always kind of that whirlwind and that expectation that we were in these positions and that there would come a time that we would go underground rather than to go back to prison. So that was the choice. Uh, It was to go underground rather than go back to prison. Some people, some Panthers chose to... Uh, to leave, uh, some some went to Cuba and to Africa and uh, and to you know uh, and to countries like Algeria, but for me that there was that that was it. It was to stay here in the mother country and to fight. When I went uh, back to prison uh, the last time and the longest time, it was different and it was tough uh, because Joyce and I uh, had met, got married fairly quickly, and she was pregnant with Jamal. And so I was leaving behind a child. Jamal was born while I was in prison, uh, uh, similar to to Tupac, who, who uh, probably has the pre-birth, had the pre-birth memory of being in jail before he was born when Afeni was locked up, when she was uh, rebanded and she was seven months pregnant with him. Uh, Jamal had M16s pointed at him when he was still in his mother's womb. Uh, and so you're thinking, as a father, for me was uh, it, it was it was it was hard to think about the choices that I had made, uh, but meaning that I might never be a father to my son because I was facing, you know, a life sentence. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I I did six years. I didn't do life, so I was able to be with him, and then uh, you know. Uh, uh our son jad and our daughter janai was born and they had a fairly you know normal upbringing uh they knew what it was because of their parents to be in an activist community in an arts community so they were at the rallies and the demonstrations and on film sets and all of that as we were making progressive art but when i talked to other uh panther children as we said panther cubs it was tough for them you know another tupac story and and The kids who were all around is when the FBI were looking for everybody connected to the Brinks case. The kids, uh, this is something, a a fond memory, but a crazy memory, got peanut butter and smeared it all over this department so that when the FBI came, they couldn't dust for fingerprints, right? (laughs) So they were raised up, always looking over their shoulder and having to move from place to place there's a part of all of their childhoods that had that confusion. They were different from other kids. They grew up thinking about the world a little bit differently. Now that they're older, those cubs are older. And, you know, uh, many of them are parents themselves. They have a long range perspective and they're proud of it. They understood it in context, but it was traumatic at the time. I would say for, uh, Young revolutionaries for young activists have your families and have your communities. Have those kids that know that they're playing with the other kids who are being raised to be conscious, to be loving, and to be in the world and to understand what their parents were and are fighting for. The stakes are lower in the sense that um, I, I, I don't think we're going to, that we're in a phase of armed propaganda. I don't know if that's the right phase to be at given how much surveillance and uh, how militarized the police are. All police have become military units, not just police departments. And, and and remember, when you militarize a police force, when they get those weapons, when they get those tanks and those armored vehicles, they're being trained by soldiers. And the mandate is different in basic training. Soldiers given these things because their, their mission is to kill the enemy. The theory of policing is p- to protect and serve. Debatable, yes? But so that's the mentality that we're in. And so that's why when we talk about that and I have young revolutionaries says, yeah, I'm going to get down like the Panthers got down or like the weather underground, get down. I strongly advise against that. I strongly say that the, 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 the greatest power we have is truly the power of the people. What I think we have to do more of is to organize the people and not just ourselves and not be in the echo chamber yelling at ourselves about who has the right party line and the right ideology, but to figure out what community programs, what tutorial programs, what community service, be they medical programs, literacy programs, fun programs, theater programs, were in the folks in the community so that they recognize those people who are revolutionaries as people that they see every day. That's what happened in communities where the Panthers were, where the Young Lords were, where Kun were, you know, organizing in Chinatown against poverty and hunger and tuberculosis. They saw those. So those are our weapons these days. And that's why I think it is safer, not without peril, you know, given how rapidly, you know, uh, fascism is spreading, you know, uh, not without peril, but safer than when we made those choices that ultimately caused us to have to go underground and cause children to have to be raised in that uh in in that uh in that traumatized environment
3: yeah it's really interesting uh and jamal just spoke about this beside like how how did having the parents that you had inform how you raised your own kids like do you feel like Yourself or any of the other weather kids have followed in your parents' footsteps in any way?
1: I think everybody has, in their own way. You know, I mean, as Jamal said, it, it's we're, we grew up in a different era, right? I, I was raised in the '80s, and and then came of came to, into consciousness in the '90s. It was a very different time than the '60s and '70s when my parents were young people, and um, so you know, very few of us, I guess, are are active, you know. Uh, underground revolutionaries. I don't know if anybody, if any of the weather kids qualify as that. But, um, you know, everybody I know who came out of that world is, uh, is you know, some kind of activist, writer, artist, teacher who is trying in their own way to, you know, to to make progress and, and to move the world forward. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of folks and they're doing a lot of different things. But I think it's interesting, you know, you, you often see in popular culture the stereotype of like the the, the child of a, of a 70s, 60s, 70s activist is a right winger. You know, it's like that, that, that Michael J. Fox sort of stereotype of like, they're going to go and, you know, rebel against their parents and become a stockbroker. Nobody That's I my knew worst did that. Yeah, nobody I knew <laughs> did that. And I think one thing is, you know, you rebellion against your parents as a teenager comes from hypocrisy. You know, teenagers don't like people who are pretending to be something they're not and they rebel strongly against that you know my parents we had our issues but they they were not hypocritical they lived their values they said what they believed and i always respected that and so you know when i came of age i, I wasn't exactly like them i had my own priorities I, I was always knew i wanted to be some kind of writer but I also knew that that I admired what they had tried to do and that I admired the people they had followed and I wanted to you know, use my writing in some way to affect change. So, and I think most of the weather kids have some sense of that. Uh,
2: I, 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 we're very proud of our kids because they all have become um, people of conscience, you know, who are aware of what's going on. Um, in the world. Jed in particular is full on revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, he works with me and helps me run my company as my creative executive, but, um uh, and, and he really is the person that I go to when, uh, when I'm doing interviews or I'm thinking about something or writing about something who truly has this pulse on what's going on in terms of, uh, of the movement, uh, and culture. Uh, so to see him do that and 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 uh you know to to kind of to kind of fully embrace struggle and dedicate his life to him but but I'll tell a funny story I I didn't realize that my kids understood who their dad was until one day I was driving Jed and Jindai home from school and uh and and and, and you know Two things are crazy about that. We live in New York and don't really need a car, but we had one. And it was joyful for me to drop them off and to, you know, to kind of pick them up and Wi-Fi will trade. And one day we're coming uh, from, and uh, and Jad is older, Janai, I think was about five. Jad was six or seven. And the lights were coming up Madison Avenue, and they're starting to break red. And I'm slowing down. And my daughter, for some reason, wanted to get home a little more quickly. And she said, Daddy, go faster. And Jed explains to her again at six, Daddy can't go faster, Jendai, because if he goes faster, he'll run the red light. And if he runs the red light, the cops will stop us. And if the cops stops us, Daddy's going to jail because he's a Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> and Mommy will have to come get us out of jail. So we're not going to make it home any faster. And I almost <laughs> crashed from laughing, you know, at their young understanding that their father was was this panther, a revolutionary, and that the stakes were higher for him, and ergo higher for us as a wow. family.
0: That's really something. how How old were they when that happened?
2: I think I, I think Jad was six, and Janai was four and a
0: half. Wow, kids are yeah. smart, man. Uh, I mean, wow. I, at least yours are. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. Um, Yeah, I want to keep talking about tactics a little bit. Um, I agree that, you know, it's probably not tactically advantageous for uh, us to be picking up guns right now. Um, I do think that it might be necessary to break the law in various ways at various points in time in order to get out of this incredible mess that we're in, this omni-crisis in the time that we have left so it is something that you know has been weighing on my mind always um not just yeah hypothetically not just in relationship to having kids but like i'm like oh well my mom would be sad and whatever whatever but um to to talk about a different tactic um I really enjoyed the description that uh, Bernadine had in this podcast of um, the the amazing effect that it had on the crowd when Muhammad Ali showed up to, uh, I believe it was an eviction defense led by Martin Luther King in Chicago, and how he just like picked up a table and brought it back inside the building, and a bunch of other people followed suit. And that sounds awesome. And I have thought a lot about the role of celebrities. And what role they should play or shouldn't play in our movement in these times, because uh, you know the right certainly has a handle on celebrity and this weird postmodern <laughs> relationship that everyone has with them and with the media and with the spectacle. And you know, I've gone back and forth on whether or not it could even work the same way for the left, but uh, you know, that's like a positive moment. So. What role do you think celebrities and celebrity could play or should play in the movement today? May I jump in with one
2: thing hypothetically before we answer that question? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me just say hypothetically, um, if, uh, you, you know, as someone who served time in prison, I can't own a gun. But hypothetically, especially if I were out in New York City, I... Don't think it would be, you know, I, I, I am a black belt. My my kids know a little bit of the martial arts. I don't think it's a, a bad thing for people to think about defense at a time when people are armed to the teeth. And you know, we used to say this kind of in passing, zay back in the 80s and the 90s, that these militias are armed to the teeth, waiting for the dog whistle so um, that yeah. they could come out. And the dog whistles it, has come. I have a, a former student who's a screenwriter uh, who will talk about his father, who's a professor. He's African American, at the University of Michigan. And I would say, what are you, what are you going to do when you go home for Thanksgiving? He says, you know, you know, my dad and I, you know, uh, you know, play a little ball and do that, and then we go shooting. And I go, but isn't your dad a prof? Your full <laughs> professor? And he says, yeah, but he also lives in Michigan, so he's got a lot of legal guns in the house. So I think thinking about self defense. Uh, martial arts, those kinds of stuff, and legally being able to protect your homes is not a bad thing to think about, given the state of the country and given that there are so many people uh, that seemed, uh, I'm talking about uh, fascists, white fascists, who seemed armed and ready to uh, to take what uh, what they perceive is their country by force.
0: Yeah, word. I totally agree.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I took I took some comfort talking to Jamal. You know, when I was making the podcast, this was the height of uh, you know the the pandemic and the George Floyd uprisings and and you know the the kind of Trump was president and we had the Proud Boys and all this kind of crazy proto fascist stuff happening. And I did take some comfort in thinking that. There were people back in the day and maybe today on our side willing to fight fire with fire in that way. You know, it can be, it can seem sometimes like the violence is all on on the one side and that's a scary situation. But I would say, Jamie, in terms of your question about, I mean, I love that Muhammad Ali story, partly because it's a kind of resistance that's nonviolent, but it's not passive and it's it's aggressively nonviolent, right? It's like, I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to walk back in there and you're not going to stop me. And I think there's something to learn from that. As my mom says, when she describes that story, you know, maybe only he could have carried it off with that kind of panache and that kind of confidence and and had, you know, convinced people to follow him that way. Uh, In terms of celebrities, I I don't know. I mean, I think we're living in a moment when very clearly uh, certain kinds of celebrities do feel empowered to to, you know, use their voices, use their platforms. To try to make change, you know, somebody like Colin Kaepernick or or, you know, you could you could name a whole handful of them who are saying, you know, in some cases, you know, not only am I going to lend my voice to a movement, but I am willing to sacrifice for that movement. I'm willing to give up uh some of the, you know, the privilege of celebrity or the trappings of celebrity in order to do what's right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think celebrities are ultimately gonna be the vanguard of any real. Radical change. I think they're they're responding like we all are to a moment, and and it does feel in these last few years like there is a a, a, a shift that there's a, a you know the potential for radical change that people, famous and not famous, are feeling.
2: Um, I'll just call one name as as I think uh, as a north star for for celebrity activism uh, and someone uh, who I love daily. Uh, who I was blessed to have as a mentor and and who we recently lost is Harry Belafonte. Mm.
1: Um,
2: And he would always make it clear that a lot of people think I'm a celebrity who became an activist, but that he was an activist who became a celebrity. Uh, And my friend, uh, the wonderful filmmaker, Susan Rostock um, uh, is, uh, is uh, completing a film that she directed. She followed, um, uh, Harry for the last 12 years on this film. is called Following Harry. And it's all about that question. Have I done enough? And it's all about the work that he's done over the years to empower people and to give that charge to people who have any kind of power um, and celebrities to do more and to learn more and not just to do it kind of as a fly by or drop in, but to, to kind of really Get involved, and uh, and Harry, Mister B, as we we all lovingly called him, was very political, very revolutionary, very and and sophisticated, in in his political stuff, and very much a socialist in what he believed in, in terms of what what America was about, uh, and so many people followed his lead. Uh, you know, there's not enough time to kind of name people, but I'm always happy. Again, Jed will point out. You know, I I, I might see someone that made a song that's interesting and it's a good actor. And Jack will be the first to point out that they have some good politics and what they're active in. I think that's important because we are so celebrity driven in that way, sports and all that stuff. And if someone can look up to those figures as a way in to understand where they have everything going for them, why would they care about police brutality? Or why would they care about racism? Or why would they care about immigration? Or why would they care about abor- abortion? it is a way in for some, you know, for some folks to understand that, uh, that there are people who, and and going back to loving beyond ourselves and fighting beyond ourselves who've achieved so much that still understand that their bigger mission and calling in life is to fight for others.
3: Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned Harry Belafonte. I have, I think, it's so unfortunate he passed, but he lived a really full life from what, everything I could gather. He did. And the way I kind of conceptualize him is kind of like, like he went uh, somewhere where someone like Paul Robeson never could. He got, achieved a level of success, uh, mainstream success, that Paul Robeson was never able to because of the Red Scare. Um, I, I did want to ask about Asada Shakur as well as Tupac. You know, you... you you knew them, so I would want to know about what were they like?
2: Great question. Um Asada was a Asada when she I was there the day Asada first walk, walked into the Panther office and was uh out on bail in the Panther twenty one case. And uh and and so was one of the people along with some other people that um that helped to uh, politically educated Asada and to train Asada. And Asada was this person who really loved the community and loved children. Uh, so was on the front lines of the breakfast program and the housing and the organizing. And Asada's journey to the underground was quite frankly her following us, a few of the Panthers who. That she really looked looked up to and admired was to kind of supr- supply some support to us. Um, you know, uh being underground was a lot of uh, uh, uh my my friend who was uh, underground, uh Sim, uh, uh who was uh, who was underground uh um, uh, who's white and spinning ground? we talked about that. There was a lot of spy craft involved in surviving, you know, in terms of where you lived and how you moved and fake ID and all of that. And so at first, the it was that. She was just there to kind of help us with material support. And it had to do with, you know, which department to move to next and ID and provisions and supplies and that kind of stuff. And then as things heated up, uh, she got more involved. And then when a few of us Went to prison and got killed, she stepped into a leadership role. But at the center of Asada, if you were around her, was always someone who had this amazing twinkle of love in her eye, and this great sense of humor, and this great la- laughter, and this great warmth to her. Uh, and someone that, as you saw, kind of moved through the ranks in the Black Panther Party and the BLA that you understood it but then part of you could still couldn't quite believe it because of that warmth and that humanity but then of course that made sense in terms of how how much she was willing to fight and to sacrifice for she believed it and as for Pac, a force of nature whenever you were around him you would spend a day with tupac and this is before he became famous and be exhausted because when he was younger, he wanted to do everything and always curious and always funny and always having the questions and just doing that. And then as he got older and the thing to talk about with Pac and his celebrity, it would, a, a date with him would be talking about music, talking about film, but then talking about political prisoners and talking about political, you know, uh, uh, police brutality and what he's going to do with this. In fact, um, the docu-series that that, that that I'm proud to have been involved in, if, if I could say that, and, and I'm not just saying this because Zaid is here, if I don't get to be part of anything else, I think that two of the most important things and the proudest things are Mother Country's Radicals and Dear Mama, uh, the, the five-part docu-series with Tupac's core. I think they really tell stories and humanize who we were in a way that's so important. And in Dear Mama, we talk a lot about of Fanny's life and Tupac's life, and who Tupac was as this confused soul, knowing that he was raised as a revolutionary but had these other things going on. And that kind of two things wrestling never left him. And he always cared about that. There are things that didn't get into the docu-series, like Tupac would leave a film set because he got a request from a kid, uh, uh, from, a, uh, from a kid who was Mexican-American who was dying and went to his bedside, left the film set to be to his bedside because that was his request. I wanted to meet Tupac Shakur and simply turned, and simply told the, uh, uh, the film producers, I'll be back. I promise I'll be back in two days, but this is something that I had to do, right? So in the midst of all of that and everything that was happening, uh, that's who he was. Brilliant, brilliant. He's one of those things that truly you can say when people said, what if Dr. King had lived? What if Malcolm X had lived? You know, there's certain figures that we say with that. In terms of what Tupac was at at the end of his life, moving away from Death Row, moving away from what had happened with East Coast and West Coast. He had started the One Nation Project where East Coast rappers and West Coast rappers uh, were coming together. His plans for his own production company, for youth programs across the country to fight for political prisoners. Um, had Tupac lived, I think that not only would art be in a different place, but our struggle for liberation would be in a different place.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, I'm just starting to learn about Tupac a little late in life. As someone who didn't grow up on rap music and everything I knew that I learned is so amazing. So it's cool to talk to somebody who knew him even when he was a little kid. Um, But speaking of... uh, when you were kids, uh, that's a terrible transition. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask Zayd a question about his dad because, you know, uh, Barack Obama got a lot of shit from a lot of people for doing a fundraiser with Bill Ayers. You know, first from Hillary Clinton in the primary and then from Sarah Palin, you know, it like he's palling around with terrorists. And, you know, in our world, it's kind of the opposite direction, right? We're like, what is Bill Ayers doing hosting a fundraiser for Barack Obama, a liberal bourgeois politician who's, you know, not even that progressive as bourgeois politicians go. So, like, how did that happen? Uh, did Does it mean anything about the way your dad's politics have changed? Or is it more like... Uh, Something less political and more like they just knew each other from Chicago.
1: It says something interesting about, you know, Hyde Park in the south side of Chicago as a sort of milieu in which people move. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, Barack was our state senator for a while. You know, he he was he was a local politician and everybody knew. He was, you know, progressive, but but liberal, certainly not radical, certainly not left wing. You know, he was a mainstream Democrat and but but a good guy and and a good guy in the neighborhood. And his daughters went to the same school where where my brothers and I went. And so we all knew each other, you know, and uh, I think the national press has a way of splitting everything into this kind of like because Barack Obama hung out with Bill Ayers, does that mean he's a secret radical? Or because Bill Ayers hosted a fundraiser for Barack Obama, does that mean he's a secret liberal? And, and you know, I don't think either one is really true. They were both, you know, people who cared about certain issues. They were on certain boards together, you know, education reform boards, things like that. And um, And, you know, everybody knew Barack was going places. He was an ambitious guy and a talented guy. And uh, and you know my dad holds a lot of fundraisers for a lot of people. His house is always open to to people in the neighborhood who are, you know, trying to trying to do good things. And they don't all have to be radicals either. You know, some of them are pretty mainstream bourgeois liberals, but they're you know they're in their own way doing good work in the neighborhood, and and so they're welcome to come by. So I would I would characterize it more in that way. And they were friendly. You know, they were they were. Good folks and, and we liked them. And I think they liked us and that's about the extent of it. So I think the right wing conspiracy theories about it are pretty ridiculous, but I also don't think we have to characterize everybody by their, you know, by who they cross paths with when their kids go to the same school. It's a little bit more casual than that,
0: you know? Yeah. I feel similarly about certain connections people try to draw between like various figures in leftist media and like what does it mean Mm -hmm. sometimes it means we like hang out at the same bars and i needed someone to have on my podcast and they were my friend and like (laughs) i might not agree with them on everything but maybe they have expertise on a subject
1: yeah no and and i mean you know we interviewed david axelrod obama's campaign manager for the podcast and i think he put it very well he said you know barack and michelle bill and bernardine they were friendly but but they're and and nobody was going to try to You know, run from that in some way. But the idea that you know, palling around with terrorists, that that that, you know, (laughs) spending time at a fundraiser means you agree with what somebody the action somebody did thirty years ago. That's obviously ridiculous, and it's just a kind of a function of our tabloid media trying to sensationalize things. You know, I think if anything, the scary thing about Obama was that he was exactly what he said he was. You know, he he was not a secret radical. He was, uh, you know. Mainstream Democrat. He made that clear. And anybody on the right or left who tried to read something else into him was kidding themselves. <laughs> you know, I think uh, some people on the left convinced themselves, just like some people on the right did, that he was a secret revolutionary. And that's not what he was. Yeah, definitely pretty,
2: not. But, Jamie, um, but to what you were saying, here's a question for all of us to think about Does everybody have to be in our same political space for us to work with them or to be friendly with them? or do we build movements by by yeah. uh you know right. as malcolm said uh in one of his great speeches i think it was message to the grassroots uh you don't organize around your differences you organize around what you have in common so if we don't have have uh have 10 things that we agree on but there's those three things can can we work on those things you know uh one of the things uh, the sayings we used to have back in the day was uh you let the bakers bake, let the teachers teach, let the healers heal, let the builders build, um, but let everyone do it with the spirit of love for the people and a revolutionary conscience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there, generally that's true. I think there are caveats to that. Yep. And we have to judge everything based on how it advances our goals in the moment and our long-term goal of uh, you know communism, social revolution, abolishing capitalism, white supremacy, all that stuff at the same time.
2: Well, let me give an example, a historical example. There were many people who would give shelter to uh, to slaves, to, to enslave people who were fleeing slavery, who maybe weren't part of the abolitionist movement. They just knew that was a good thing to do mm-hmm. and to take that risk. Yeah. Just food for thought for us, folks.
0: Well... I mean, people are definitely transformed in the course of actions, whether or not they are doing them for ideological or political reasons to begin with. So I definitely agree with that.
2: Absolutely. And we have to be able to give them that chance to be transformed, to discover the possibilities of how that feels and of evolving more in that direction.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree in that sense. I mean, this is why, uh, I mean, I definitely have friends in my life that are definitely not socialists. Um, that are liberals. That I know from just you know being a person living in this state for almost a decade now, uh, and they do want to people. People generally, if like they understand that injustice and oppression is real in this country and in this world, they definitely want to try to do what they think is best. Of course, we can have disagree what what that is. whether those actions are good or not. But, I mean, that's why I spend so much time uh, organizing within DSA, which is like a multi-tenancy organization. But also, I mean, I think about... I think there are a lot of comrades that I know that get really pessimistic in terms of like, oh, well, will radical change happen or not? And I always kind of bring up like what happened in 2020, which is like, well, we found out whether we'll win or not. And I think empirically that, yes, we will win. Like justice and and liberation will win because when the George Floyd uprisings and protests and everything regarding that happened, and then when there were these counter-protests, these counter like counter-revolutionary activities, whether it's like what happened in Wisconsin or what 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 happened in uh around the election or January 6th, it's like there were more people that came out for freedom and liberation than came out for fascism, period. Like that that, that we know that happened. That's all that matters. And most people who probably came out for the George Floyd protests were not these like radical socialist revolutionaries in terms of what they had in mind. All they knew is that they saw a black man being killed in the street, executed in the street by by a police officer, and all they knew, that they knew that that was wrong. And I think that that is indicative of where we're going in the sense that there are going to be many people who all they know is that they're against the existing order and they want to try to fight against it. And it's up to us to try to...
2: All they may know is that kids are going hungry and y'all are doing something to feed them, right? And I'm not talking about a social welfare movement. You Mm -hmm. hear where I'm going with this, right? Yeah, yeah. The breakfast program continued to exist after the Black Panther Party ceased to exist because some of those grandmothers and parents kept the doors open. And some of those kids who grew up in those programs kept you going or created versions of that had an educational comp- component so somebody marches with you at one thing and then they come around we've got to be able to invite them in and not be so hardlined that if they don't agree with every single thing that they don't belong yeah right yeah
0: I'm gonna try to square some of these circles as we move towards the end of the show sadly um yeah I think, Everything Jorge said about 2020, I agree with. I also think, um, you know, there are certain barriers that things ran up against. Um, And and there's definitely like, I think it put the possibility of revolution in this country back on the table in a way that hadn't been since probably the 1960s. But, you know, again, it did not develop into a revolutionary scenario in the end, Um, you know, there were certain barriers that every struggle comes up against. Um, and it's the job of the revolutionary left, you know, to uh, try to open these kinds of ruptures wider to help push them in the direction of revolution. But um, looking around at what's going on in the world, uh, as well as the, you know, the relatively small size of the anti-capitalist left as such, although... We found out in 2020 that there are a whole lot of additional people who are willing to throw down, who are not necessarily part of any organization, which is great to know. Um, but it's still it's still easy to feel a little discouraged, right? Like there is just crisis after crisis compounding upon each other. Um, we have... So much to do, and you know, climate change is putting this really historically unique uh, time limit on it in many ways. Um, so yeah, sometimes we get a little discouraged. But uh, is there anything that gives you guys hope for the future that uh, you know either this generation of revolutionary partisans or you know perhaps a, f- a future generation is going to be able to do the thing, going to be able to <laughs> unfuck the world overthrow capitalism white supremacy imperialism all that stuff uh and build communism in time to really i mean the world will still be here but human beings won't if we don't manage to do it uh so yeah what is there anything that gives you guys hope and where perhaps are you looking for that hope who's inspiring you
1: I'll say something quick and then I'll let Jamal have the last word because he'll be able to finish this off better. But, um, you know, I, yes, I have hope. I think I, I look at at first of all, I'm old enough now to have seen, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, the, the the kind of political consciousness we see in young people right now. I mean, it existed in pockets, but there was nothing like the awareness that you see in a generation coming into consciousness and kind of trying to understand what's going on. I feel like the world, you're right, Jamie, there, there's an existential threat. There's multiple existential threats. And I think people are noticing that. And I think young people in particular are are taking action against that. So I, I feel hopeful. I felt hopeful in 2020, watching the way people responded to those crises. I also felt hopeful making this show and talking to people like Jamal, people like my parents, just to kind of, to, to hear the history of these struggles, that they have always leaned on struggles of the past. They've always tried to build on struggles that, that came before them. And that, you know, as much as, yes, capitalism is always messing everything up and we are always in, in crisis and there are cyclical crises, but there are also cyclical resistance movements, and people are constantly rising up in unexpected places to resist those kinds of exploitation. So, so that makes me feel hopeful, even in all the terror and sadness that we're involved in. What about you, Jamal?
2: Yeah, my hope and sanity come from young people. Uh, I'm lucky that I'm a professor, so I get young minds coming in, it, uh, albeit graduate school, wanting to be filmmakers. But the level of their level of awareness and the work that they're trying to do and the issues that they want to talk about and what they're doing just kind of outside of being filmmakers. And then uh, there's a youth program that uh, uh, my my dear friend, um, Rosa Rivers, and my wife, Joyce, and I started called call Impact uh, Repertory Theater that's 25 years old and is Harlem-based. And those young people that have grown up in the program to see kind of what they're doing in the world and, and doing it with uh, with some consciousness and awareness um and with caring and again uh some have more ideology than others but everybody understands injustice and the fight against that the fight the fight for justice and the fight for humanity uh and that's why i think that's such powerful uh such a powerful start the most hopeful thing that i think about so much is this past black history Month Joyce and I were invited back to the school that uh, all of my children went to as kids. It's called Central Park East. It's a progressive school. Uh, it's multicultural. It's in East Harlem. And we went to talk about who we were. And these were pre-Ks and kindergartners. And we had to figure out, how do we do this? So we did a little bit of a show and tell. And Joyce talked about her work as a, you know as an actress and as a model. And I talked about the Panthers. And then I started to talk about the breakfast program. And uh, our friend Alvita, who's been teaching there since uh, she taught our children when they were young. Uh, and there are other teachers. I, forgive, uh, I, I can't remember the name. Forgive me. Uh, a Latina teacher said, and what was the Panther breakfast program? And this was a mix of kids. Uh, and there were a few white kids in it. And. This four and a half-year-old white kid named Isaac with glasses raised his hand and explained what the breakfast program was. When people came together to feed people, and two great emotions came over me. One I had to fight back tears, and the other one is like I seriously wanted to steal Isaac and bring him home with me. Right. <laughs> and that's in response to the fact that that uh you know, that, that none of my kids, uh, none of our kids have made us grandparents yet. And I was like, I found my grandchild. Don't anybody ask, I'm gonna be walking around the neighborhood, I, <laughs> Isaac. For this, for this young man at four and a half years old to have this humanity and to see what they had around the school in terms of who they were and civil rights heroes and revolutionary heroes, this gives me tremendous, tremendous hope.
3: Yeah. One last question. The WGA strikes. How can people get involved and why do they matter?
1: Well, they matter because I mean Jamal and I are both writers, we're both screenwriters, we're both members of the guild. And they matter because like all labor movements, this is a situation where writers who are the workers who are producing the the product, the the who are who are fundamentally responsible for what these companies are selling are being exploited by those companies we the th- the the demands that the writers guild has made if you add them all up they amount to 2% of the profits that these big companies are making just off of the scripted television and film that writers guild members make in other words if they gave us everything we're asking for uh it would be 2% of the profits we are making for them so Fundamentally, it's just a question of worker rights and fairness and and trying to get these big companies to share a tiny piece of the profits that they are making off of of the work we do. Uh, There's also other issues. I'm sure you've read about AI and and how we can kind of create a sustainable future for for writers as a career Fundamentally, the, the business has transformed over the past few years. The rise of streaming, these big tech companies getting in, all the cons- consolidation of these major corporate international conglomerates. It, it is now a business where a writer, even a very successful writer who is selling TV shows, selling films, making, you know, being in writers' rooms, those people can't make a living doing what they do because it's turned into this kind of piecemeal gig work where a big company can hire you for 10 weeks fire you, make the show. You never see any residuals. You never see any piece of the profit. And so it's, you know, it's just, I think like any labor action, it's a, it's a moment when the workers in this case, writers are standing up and saying, you know, the, the system has, has mistreated us and, and is fundamentally broken. And we have to use our collective action to uh, force these companies to share a little bit of the wealth that we're creating.
2: And people can get involved by uh, just going to the uh, WGA uh, website, and it shows in each city uh, where um, where the picketing is happening in that day. And there's been outreach to other unions and how other people can get involved. And as in terms of the labor movement, that solidarity is important. Uh, and uh, and we and the guild should also remember when other people are picketing and striking to be there. Because it is not just about one union winning one set of demands. It is about a labor move, a movement understanding enough will never be enough uh, until there's uh, there's true equity, true, true liberation. And what, what what better way to do that than to be in solidarity with other unions and, uh, and, to, uh, and to, to meet people that are going to be your comrades in struggle, your brothers and sisters for life?
1: That is so true, Jamal. You know, one quick story like, you know, I have seen firsthand the solidarity between unions that it is a beautiful thing when it happens because I'm I'm the strike captain for the WGA in Chicago. And we've had a couple of labor actions where we've shown up on, on the sets of productions and, you know, just a few of us picketing, a few writers walking a picket line. And then the the members of the, the IATSE union, the Teamsters, they will show up, and they will refuse to cross those picket lines. And these multimillion dollar productions get shut down just by three or four writers walking a line and our sister unions refusing to cross those lines. And suddenly the companies have no product to, uh, to make. So, and uh, Jamal's absolutely right. We as writers have seen that solidarity firsthand. And now when those other unions, when IATSE goes on strike, when the teamsters go on strike, we have to be there to support them.
0: Word.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, okay. We lied. Uh, <laughs> is there any revolutionary wisdom th- or tips that you would like to leave us with uh, as you know young communists hoping to achieve social revolution in our lifetime the question you can take as broad or as specific as you like but um, I do mean something specific when I talk about social revolution
2: yeah absolutely I, I I'll kind of just sum up what it, what I've been saying in different ways is we have to meet people and embrace them. Uh, where we find them, and 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 you you organize people around. Uh, it, we are not going to win unless we organize the masses, and unless we educate the masses. Right? We can have all of the meetings and the conventions we want, and come up with the agreed upon ideology and a strategy and position papers, but none of that means nothing unless the broad masses of people understand. Who the heck we are? What we're fighting for, and it's their fight too. And so, the thing I want to leave people with is that this notion of organizing, freedom is an freedom is an abstract concept. Freedom to someone who hasn't had a meal is a meal. Liberation is someone who is unhoused or in poor housing is a safe, dry, humane place to sleep. Revolution to someone who can't get decent medical care is compassionate care from someone who's willing to hold their hand and saying, how can I help you feel better? When we begin to organize people around their needs and use that to point out the contradictions in society, that's how we build a mass movement. Mass movements are built around needs, ideological movements are built around ideas. When we understand that work and how to join the two together, we will have true people's
1: revolution. 100% hundred percent I can't add anything to that
0: my cosine word well, thank you so much for joining us, both of you yeah, thank you uh, yes. this has been really really cool for us <laughs> to, to be able to do and uh yeah keep up keep up the fight in all the different ways that we've been talking about
3: Where can listeners find you in all your work
1: uh they can find me, I, you know, I, like Jamal, I'm a professor. I'm at Northwestern. My my books and plays are distributed um, by by Concordia Publishing. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Zaydorn, Dorn, although probably not for much longer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can find me at the Northwestern website. And, uh, of course, the podcast Mother Country Radicals is available anywhere you listen to podcasts.
2: Uh, for me, Columbia University website and jamaljoseph.com.
3: All right. Thank you so much. And until next time, listeners, remember, do the thing.
0: Do the thing. Thank you, guys.